It is the, the greatest joy and the greatest privilege uh, in my life to be, uh, and my family's life, to be uh, among and part of this church family. Uh, a joy among all joys. Uh, to open the Word of God each and every Sunday is the highest of joys. And my heart bursts when I stand up here and see so many faces. Uh, there's an inescapable reality that just won't leave me. Uh, I'm praise, I praise God that it's something that's haunting me in a really good way, and it's this. And I've said it before, and I want to say it again. I said it recently in a sermon before Easter. Our knowledge of God, uh, the depth of that knowledge of God, affects the height of our praise and worship of God. We can only praise God and worship God as high as is our knowledge of God. Doctrine is no dead, dry matter. When it's taught in a dead, dry manner and embraced just intellectually, surely that's a problem, but theology properly understood, properly grasped, affects the height of our worship. Now, all that to say this, our knowledge of God ignites our affections for God because we learn about how wonderful He truly is and it ignites our affections for God. We want to live for God. And what happens when our affections for Jesus are elevated and ignited, that then affects our will. And our will then wants to live for God. So may it be written of you and of me and of this church that we were a people who truly knew God and because we truly knew God and the depth of God, it then ignited our affections for God and then ignited our desire to live for God because our will wasn't set on anything else other than to live for God in His glory. I just can't escape that and I want to keep saying that. If we want to know God, we need to truly know God by what is found in His Word. And so we come once again to our blessed journey through the Gospel of Mark. We'll wrap up chapter 7 this Sunday by looking at verses 31 through to 37. And the title of the message this morning is, and it really bursts out of this text as we'll see in a moment, and it just becomes another inescapable reality. The title of the message this morning is, He does all things well. He does. And as I read this passage, the words there in verse 37, he does all things well, jump right off the page. They draw our heart close to Jesus. He does all things well. I want us to take a moment to recap what Jesus has done thus far well. What he's done well as we look through the Gospel of Mark. And may this ignite in us an affection a deep affection for the Lord Jesus Christ. Look back at Mark chapter 1 for a moment. That is the greatest sound you could ever hear. Look at verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized. Verse 9 tells us Jesus was baptized. He obeyed the Father's will. He does all things well. Verse 12 and 13 tells us Jesus endured in his humanity the assaults of Satan and not once 
did he use his divinity to escape, but in his active obedience as a man, as the champion Christ, he withstood. Verse 14 tells us Jesus began to preach. What did he preach? He preached repentance. He proclaimed it. He does all things well. Verse 29 through to verse 45 tell us that Jesus healed those with leprosy, those possessed by demons, those who had diseases. His compassion is on display. He does all things well. In chapter 2 now, verse 5 tells us that Jesus forgives sin. He has authority to do so. He does all things well. Verse 14 shows us that he does, he goes and he He's calling people to himself. He says, follow me. That's his call. He does all things well. He confronts legalistic, hypocritical Jewish leaders. He challenges them about their man-made Sabbath laws. In chapter 3, verse 13, he prays all night. He chooses the 12 men that he would send out as apostles out into the world to do gospel ministry. He most certainly does all things well. In chapter 4... We see parables to the masses and private explanation to the 12 disciples. Jesus is teaching the men there that he would leave and that they would continue his ministry when he ascends to the Father. He most certainly does all things well. Verse 35, he calms the storms of the sea. He's building strong faith in his followers. He does all things well. Chapter 5, we see Jesus cast out demons. He performs countless Miracles. He heals multitudes. And he's just there giving a preview of what the coming kingdom of God will look like for each and every one of us as a believer here this morning. There'll be no sickness anymore. There'll be no suffering anymore. He certainly has done all things well. In chapter 6, verses 1 to 6, Jesus returns again to teach at his hometown, Nazareth, and they marvel, and he marvels rather at their unbelief. Verse 7, he sends the 12 out on a training run on their own. He's preparing them for the hardships of ministry. Verse 45, Jesus walks on water, calms the storm. He continues to teach them to trust in him in the storms of life. He does all things well. The remainder of chapter 6, Jesus heals any and all that come to him. His compassion knows no end. Chapter 7 now, Jesus exposes the man-made laws, the man-made traditions by the Jewish religious leaders. And then verses 14 through 23, Jesus then begins to, begins to truly uh, teach what it is that truly defiles a person. He teaches that truth to the everyday people. He does all things well. And last Sunday, verses 24 to 30, Jesus goes out for the first time ever into non-Jewish country and begins gospel ministry to the nations. We saw that he had the 12 with him. We saw that they saw firsthand the beginning of the extension of the gospel from Israel out into the nations. He does all things well. And now here, in our passage, we see reasons to praise God. Why? Because Jesus, he does all things well. Let's read our passage together this morning. Verses 31 to 37 of Mark chapter 7. Sorry, verses 31. Yeah, I said that. 
Again, he went out from the region of Tyre and came through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee within the region of Decapolis. They brought to him one who was deaf and spoke with difficulty, and they implored him to lay his hand on him. Jesus took him aside from the crowd by himself and put his fingers into his ears. And after spitting, he touched his tongue with the saliva. And looking up to heaven with a deep sigh, he said to him, Ephephtha, that is, be open. And his ears were open and the impediment of his tongue was removed and he began speaking plainly. And he gave them orders to not tell anyone. But the more he ordered them, the more widely they continued to proclaim it. They were utterly astonished, saying, He has done all things well. He makes even the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. Lord, we're given one fast and fleeting life. We want to live it well. We want to live it for your glory. We fail and sin against you so often. We sin against one another. Lord, it's inexcusable and unacceptable. Would you please forgive us? Would you help us now to have attentive hearts and attentive minds to your word? Would the worries of the world and the concerns of the weak and the dramas of life be removed as we sit under your word? As an act of worship, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What's on display for us quite clearly, quite strikingly here, in our passage, is the fact that Jesus is supernatural. Supernatural. When you believe in Jesus, you believe in the supernatural. In fact, Christianity is a supernatural faith. We mustn't let the supernatural scare us. Because we believe in a supernatural faith. We believe in the miraculous. We believe in the Holy Spirit of God. Properly defined. We believe in a God who performs miracles. There are three, even four, miracles that stand out among the rest. They stand as pillars among the rest of our supernatural Christian faith. First, the creation of the heavens and the earth. With a word, God created everything out of nothing. Truly miraculous. Second, the regeneration of the human heart. Whereby God, the Holy Spirit, takes a spiritually dead person with a spiritually dead heart and miraculously transforms that heart into a new heart. In some ways, that's a greater miracle than that of creation. Because in salvation, in regeneration, God takes something that is completely wicked, that is in complete rebellion, and completely miraculously changes it. Third, another pillar miracle is surely the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Where a dead man rises from the dead. Where the Savior who bore the sins of His people arose and now ever lives and intercedes for you and me. 
on our behalf in prayer. And fourth, the incarnation of the Son of God. And that is what I want to touch on this morning here. It's quite providential that, Sam, you emphasize that very thing. You see, the reason there is all this healing and all this forgiving of sins and all this calming of storms and walking on water and casting out demons and people being miraculously converted is because Jesus is doing, as the people here are excitedly declaring, Jesus is doing all things well. And the answer is doing all things well is because Jesus is God. If God were to come down to earth and dwell among man as a man, we would expect, would we not, him to be able to perform the miraculous. Miraculous physical healing and miraculous spiritual healing. And that's exactly what Jesus has done. He's a God. He's a God of miracles. And the incarnation where God comes down and dwells among man as a man has been rightly called the miracle of all miracles. So let's think about that for a moment. Among all the miracles that God has performed, none shines so bright and so incredible as the unifying and joining together of a holy and almighty and majestic God who is infinite with the frailty of finite man. In fact, it is that very fact that makes the incarnation so astounding and glorious. Listen to the words of Philippians chapter 2, verse 6 and 7. It says this, Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. God became a man, is what that's saying. Jesus didn't come into being when this happened. No. We don't believe that because the Son has existed eternally. John chapter 1 verse 2, He was, speaking of Jesus, in the beginning with God and was God. But what we see is that God assumed the humility of a man in order to come and serve as a mediator between God and man. Jesus lived a perfect, sinless life. He fulfilled all righteousness. You see, man had sinned against God, and so man was required to be cleansed of that defilement of the sin against God. And yet man was completely unable to do so. Because only God could make an atonement for sin. And the only sacrifice that was effective and acceptable was the one that is mentioned in Hebrews chapter 2 verse 17 where it says this, Jesus had to be made like his brethren in all things that he might make propitiation for the sins of the people. And so God became a man to reconcile man to God. And so as we track through the gospel of Mark, 
and we walk through the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ, we are witnessing the Son of God, God Himself, God incarnate, ushering in His kingdom, living out His days on His way to die for us, that He might rise again. And so with that very thing at the forefront of our mind, let's walk through our passage this morning. In Mark chapter 7, verses 31 to 37, we'll see three significant events in the life of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, that will present us with reasons to worship and praise God as we see the Son of God, God in man, on display. I want to give you some headings to hang your thoughts on. We'll see, number one, first, a massive undertaking in verse 31. A massive undertaking. And number two, we'll see a Messiah moment in verses 32 to 35. And lastly, we'll see, third, a monumental amazement in verses 36 and 37. And so let's begin with first a massive undertaking in verse 31. Look there in your Bibles. Again, it says, Jesus went out from the region of Tyre and came through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee within the region of Decapolis. You recall from the previous passage last Sunday, verses 24 to 30, that Jesus has now come to the regions outside of Israel for the first time. He took the twelve with him, commenced this ministry to the nations. And it really is... That very thing, the part of the reason why he does all things well. He's come to the nations. He's the light of the world, the savior of the world. And when we read that in scripture, that Jesus is the savior of the world, it's not saying that Jesus saves the world. That is heretical universalism. But what it means is that Jesus is the savior for not only the Jews but also for those among every nation and every language and every place who put their faith and trust in Him. And here in verse 31, we see Jesus expressing His immense goodness and greatness by being faithful to extend the message of saving faith to the nations. I said it last week and say it again, the very reason you and I sit here converted is because Jesus did this. And the twelve went out to the ends of the earth. They turned it upside down. Look at verse 31 again, and I want to show you something interesting. Jesus traveled from Tyre, where he just had that faith-filled encounter with the Syrophoenician woman. We learn here in verse 31, this massive undertaking, where Jesus then traveled to Sidon, which was 32 kilometers walk north. And then, instead of traveling... And entering into Galilee, which is northern Israel, Jesus then instead cut across to the east, to the east coast of the Sea of Galilee, and that's about another 60 kilometers walk. And so circumnavigating Israel, he then went down to the Gentile region of Decapolis, and Decapolis means 10 cities. It's a Gentile area, not part of Israel, it's made up of 10 different Cities, And so by making this journey, which was some 190 plus kilometers walk, 
Jesus actually, and I believe deliberately, sidesteps and intentionally steps aside and stays away from Israel. Fascinating. He just exited Israel for the first time and now here he travels south again and he stays out of Israel. This is consistent with what is now happening in his life and his ministry. He first preached to Israel. He preached there. He performed miracles there. He marveled at their unbelief. And he was massively rejected there. And so in line with God's plan for the nations, Jesus now continues to commence and extend his message and his ministry to the Gentile nations. And this journey here in verse 31 was a massive undertaking. Think about it for a moment. The 12 are with him and he's no doubt teaching them along the way, along this 190 kilometer plus walk. I don't know how long that would take you, but it would take a long time having to stop overnight and the like. And Jesus is being faithful to prepare them for his departure. Because soon, and we'll see it very soon in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus will set his heart toward Jerusalem. Where he will be crucified. So Jesus and the twelve arrive, and after a long journey together, they arrive in Decapolis. Jesus has been here before. We saw that in Mark chapter 5, verse 1 through 20. It was here that Jesus healed the man possessed of, you remember, legion. That is, thousands of demons. And do you, do you remember what the people had first said to Jesus in Decapolis? In that time? They said, get out of here. Leave our region. We don't want you here in our region, Jesus. Be gone. And you'd recall that the man who had been demon-possessed by those thousands of demons, you remember what he did? Mark chapter 5, verse 20 says, He went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis what great things Jesus had done for him, and everyone was amazed. And so perhaps as a result of becoming the first ever Gentile missionary into this region, this man had spoken about Jesus and now this region no longer wanted to reject Jesus and tell him to leave their region. No, no, no. They were longing for him to come and stay in his region. Behold the plan of God. And come Jesus had. To the Decapolis. What a, what a praiseworthy truth. Jesus comes to the nations. He, he didn't just come to Israel. He came to save His people. And His people come from every tribe and every tongue. And that's why you and I sit here this morning as His children. Why? Because we are children of the promise. We sing that. What praise we can offer to God. Thank you, Lord, that you planned to save from all corners of the globe. You didn't leave us in little old New Zealand to our own. And Jesus begins that ministry, as we got to see here in Mark chapter 7. And so first we see this massive undertaking by Jesus, where he stays in deep Gentile territory by way of this long journey sidestepping Israel because they'd rejected their Messiah. And now speaking of Messiah, 
Now we see in the heart of non-Jewish land, it's the second event, a Messiah moment. A Messiah moment in verses 32 to 35. Look there with me. They brought to him one who was deaf and spoke with difficulty, and they implored him to lay his hand on him. Jesus took him aside from the crowd by himself and put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, he touched his tongue with the saliva, and looking up to heaven with a deep sigh, he said to him, Ephaphtha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, and the impediment of his tongue was removed, and he began speaking plainly. Here we see the Son of God, God incarnate, incarnate, perform a miracle upon a man that has been brought to him. The man was deaf, deaf as a door nail. He couldn't speak properly. And now when it comes to miracles by Jesus, my professor at seminary later taught me something very, very helpful. Let me share it with you. Because we see each of these playing out before our very eyes in our passage this morning, here in this Messiah moment. He said there are four basic reasons why Jesus performed miracles. Why Jesus performed miracles while he was here on earth. Four reasons. Number one, to authenticate that Jesus is indeed the Son of God. God in human flesh. In Mark chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, which we've walked through, Jesus forgave sin and healed a paralytic man. He told the man that his sins are forgiven, and he told the man to get up and walk, exercising miraculous power. Only God can do those things. This authenticated Jesus' deity as God. First. Number two, Jesus' miracles demonstrated the immense compassion of Jesus toward the suffering. His whole ministry is surrounded by those who are suffering, those who are in anguish. And Jesus, driven by deep love and compassion, healed people by his power. Every miracle by Jesus displays his immense love. We certainly see that taking place here in verses 32 to 35. Third, and this is what we see playing out here, Jesus' miracles demonstrate that Jesus is the promised Messiah. The Old Testament would promise that a Messiah would come in the power of the Holy Spirit of God. That the Spirit of God would rest upon the Messiah and that He would, as a result of coming in the power of the Holy Spirit, He would perform miracles. That's clear from many Old Testament passages. Speaking of the Messiah, Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah 61 verse 1, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted and to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners. In Matthew chapter 11, verses 1 through 5, we see Jesus being asked a question. He's asked the question, are you the expected one? That is, are you the Messiah? Listen to Jesus' answer. This is what he said to them. Go and report what you hear and see. The blind receive sight. And the lame walk. And the lepers are cleansed. And the deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them. Before we get to the fourth reason for Jesus' miracles, I want us to see this Messiah moment. 
This is a vivid account of this miracle in verse 33. Look at verse 33. Jesus took him aside from the crowd by himself, it says. Matthew actually tells us that there are large crowds around at present. Mark doesn't. If we just read Mark and we just had Mark, we'd think that this was an isolated account. But Matthew actually tells us this. There's thousands of people around. Jesus takes this one man aside. Jesus purposely takes him away from the crowd. This guy wasn't simply a number. He was precious to Christ. Jesus then places his fingers in the man's ears. By doing so, think of it, the man then has some idea, he's deaf, he then has some idea of what Jesus was going to do to him. That is, Jesus is signaling that he's about to deal with his deafness. Jesus then takes his own saliva, spits, and he puts some of that spittle on his finger and then reaches inside the man's mouth and presses down upon his tongue. Jesus calling attention to the man that he's about to do a work upon his tongue. The man is deaf. Jesus can't verbally communicate to him. So he's touching his ears, touching his tongue. To signify that Jesus' attention is fixated upon his greatest physical need. The man is now face to face with the Messiah in this moment. Look what happens next in verse 34. Looking up to heaven. Looking up to heaven. There's something so unique and so different, isn't there, about how Jesus is performing this miracle? The manner in which Jesus is doing this miraculous healing? This is so very different. But Jesus is being so very deliberate. He looks toward heaven. And to communicate to this man that what is about to happen has as its origin the one true God. Picture the scene. Picture that scene. And now add to that scene a very deep sigh. It's a sigh of sympathy. The Greek word literally means groan. Jesus sighed because of his immense immense compassion and sympathy for this man who had suffered so long. And so by looking toward heaven and by pulling the man aside and by touching the man's ears and his tongue and by sighing with sympathy, Jesus is putting the compassion of God on display and he is fulfilling that he is indeed the Messiah. And he affirms all of that with the words he then speaks. Ephephtha, Aramaic, Jesus' mother tongue. Mark tells us, be open. And with a word of a command, Christ creates new eardrums and loosens this man's tongue. Verse 35, and his ears were open and the impediment of his tongue was removed. 
The man who couldn't hear a thing now heard voices. Noises flooded in to his mind. And the man who couldn't speak without this very significant stammering now could speak freely. End of verse 35. He began speaking plainly. What excitement must have filled his heart. My mother for 25 years worked at the Royal Victorian Eye and Ear Hospital. They created the bionic ear. And my mother was there the day that they turned it on for this young girl for the very first time. And she, for the very first time, heard. And you can, I can still see, it was played on the news, the joy and the excitement upon her face when she, for the very first time, heard. What excitement must have filled this, this man's heart this day? It's a Messiah moment. And now I want you to consider the last of those four reasons why Jesus performed miracles. We already saw that it was to, to authenticate who he was, to demonstrate his compassion to the suffering, to demonstrate that he's the expected one, the Messiah. And now, fourth, every miracle that Jesus performs reveals the power of God in salvation. In salvation. What Jesus does physically in miracle is a vivid illustration of what Jesus does spiritually when he saves a person. When Jesus opened the physical eyes, he's showing that only he can open the spiritual eyes. When Jesus opened the physical ears, he's showing that only he can open the spiritual eyes. Is And that is exactly the lesson for us today. That is what God wants us to see and that is what God wants us to praise. That His Son, the eternal Son of God, God dwelling among man, came to seek and save the blind and the deaf. He came for those who cannot see their need for a Savior. He came for those who cannot hear their need for a Savior. Jesus' miracles are a powerful display of the power of God in salvation. Mark uses a word here that is the same word used in the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint. And it's used in Isaiah 35 verses 4 and 5. It says this, listen to these words. Say to the anxious of heart, take courage and fear not. Behold, your God will come. He will save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened. And the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Remarkable. There's a special scene in the Decapolis with our Savior. He's done all things well. Let me point out a few things. In the physical sense... This man had some very good friends. Look back at verse 32. These good friends, they brought him to Jesus. They. A group of people. They cared enough. They loved enough. To do what? To bring him to Jesus. And when this man actually listened to his friends... Instead of rejecting and kicking and screaming, but he actually listened and he came. And when he came, 
Willingly, Jesus opened his ears and loosened his tongue. He was set free. Now, there are important instructions and vivid illustrations of a spiritual nature here today that we so desperately need. You and I must care enough, must love enough to bring people before Jesus, to the foot and the feet of Jesus. But it's not simply enough just to bring them. Look at the middle of verse 32. What did these people do? They implored him to lay his hand on him. The word for implore means to beg. We must bring people to Christ and we must beg Jesus Christ that he would open their ears. That they may see just how worthy he is. Just how precious he truly is. That they would see their great need for him. It takes being bold in our mind and bold in our mouth. We need to tell them about Jesus. And the reason we can tell them about Jesus is because what happened physically to this man here in the Decapolis with his encounter with Jesus happened to us spiritually in our encounter with Jesus. When our ears and our mouths will loosen. You see, when we were converted for the first time ever, our loosened tongues employ. We sing that. We can speak of Christ because we've heard of Christ. And the reason we've heard of Christ is because in salvation, He performed a miracle Upon us. Our mouths were open, our ears were open, so that we might then bring others to Christ and have their ears and mouths open. We can praise God for all of this. We praise God that Jesus went out into the nations. Praise God that our ears and our mouths have been opened because Jesus opened our ears and our mouths. It's a Messiah moment. Lastly, I want us to see the third and final event. It's this monumental amazement. Look at verse 36 to 37. So after this has happened, Jesus then gives them, no doubt the man and his friends, orders to not tell anyone. For the more, it says there, he ordered them, the more widely they continued to proclaim it. Jesus gives them orders to not say anything. And get this. The man went from not being able to speak (laughs) to not being able to do anything but speak. Why did Jesus again here command them not to say anything? We've seen this kind of thing before. Because Jesus doesn't want there to be ecstatic and chaotic type of frenzy around him, for it isn't time, a part of his divine schedule. He certainly doesn't need any more crowds hindering his ministry. 
We saw crowds hindering his ministry in Mark chapter 1, verse 40 to 45, where the crowds grew so large that it says there that Jesus couldn't even enter cities. In John chapter 6, verse 14 and 15, we see crowds there, we've seen that, where the crowds were so large and so excited that they were intending to take by force Jesus and make him king. Jesus needs to go to the cross first. He needs to be crucified first. He needs to rise again first. Listen to Mark chapter 8, verse 30 to 31. And he warned them to tell no one about him. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And I believe it's in Luke chapter 9, verse 45, I believe, off the top of my head, that after all that happens, the cry then is, Surely, this is the Son of God. And so Jesus tells them not to tell anyone. But the more he tells them, the more they speak. Wow. Joyful disobedience, elated disregard. But let me point out one very glaring and one very scary, and may it not be a condemnation but a motivation, let me point out something very ironic here. The man is told to not talk about Jesus. And all he does is talk about Jesus. You and I are told to talk about Jesus. And if you and I are very honest with ourselves, we often shrink back from talking about Jesus. Our loosened tongues have been loosened that we might employ them. In proclaiming to any and all that Jesus is Lord, that He is mighty, that He is worthy, that He is God, that He went to the cross and that if you believe in Him, that He laid down His life on His own initiative, that He went to the cross and upon that cross He bore the sin that was due you. And that if you believe by faith in this precious Son of God who went to the cross, who was crucified and who rose again, If you come by faith and faith alone and turn away from your sins, He will forgive you. Your ears that are blocked and your eyes that are blind will be open. And you will see the preciousness of the Savior. This man could do nothing but speak about Jesus. Look at verse 37. This is talking about the people in the crowd. They were utterly astonished. After witnessing all that had transpired, all that they had heard, they were utterly astonished. Strong language in the Greek. They were outside of themselves. They were out of their mind. They weren't just going, hmm, wow. They were blown out of their mind, literally. 
No doubt they too went about proclaiming all that Jesus had done. And part of this astonishment and part of this exclamation were those words. He's done all things well. He makes even the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. This man was freed of deaf ears and a mute mouth. And he was literally out of his mind with joy. And he'd only been healed physically. You and I, we've been healed spiritually, miraculously. May it never be. Shame be upon you and I if we just, we're not astonished. Shame be you and I if we don't say, he's done all things well. For a physical man, a man healed physically, finds such great joy and great affection in Jesus Christ that he can do nothing but speak about him. And you and I have been transformed miraculously. May you and I speak about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God incarnate. He's done a wonderful work in your soul. Loosened tongues employ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word so much. So much that we can draw from a gospel narrative. Help us to love Christ. To wind with drama and disruptions and distractions where Satan wins. Help us to fix our eyes upon Jesus, Lord. The author and the perfecter of this supernatural, wonderful faith. Thank you for opening our eyes, our ears, and our mouths. Thank you for this treasure, and thank you for the precious Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.